Hi, I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is Killer Destinations. Before we start today's episode, Kathy and I just wanted to say a very, very big and heartfelt thank you for all of your support over the past year. This is episode 52. Yay! (laughs) I know she never sounds happy when she does that, but she is. (laughs) And you can't hear us, but right now we are toasting with Prosecco. Oh, geez, that was a loud toast. (laughs) We also have so much more to thank you for. We have more than 50,000 downloads in one year. At six months, we were at 12,000. Yeah. So can't believe the growth. It's been amazing. We have more than 2,000 Instagram followers now. Thank you so much. Truly, this wouldn't be possible without all of you. And we said that we were going to reassess at the one-year mark to see if our efforts were worth it, because this takes a heck of a lot more time than we realized. And they are. We're going to stick with this. We're going to keep going. And as Kathy said to somebody recently, it is a lot more hard work than you actually think. So if you're thinking of starting a podcast, go in with blinders on. Right. Because (laughs) if you knew, you wouldn't even start. Don't do any research in advance. Exactly. (laughs) Just Just dive in. (laughs) So with that, we'll continue with the episode. Today's destination is Dickinson, Texas. Dickinson is a town on the east side of Texas, located halfway between Houston and Galveston. The Dickinson Bayou meanders through this small town and leads to Galveston Bay and into the Gulf of Mexico. The Galveston, Houston, and Henderson Railroad was built directly through Dickinson, and this line was used in the American Civil War to successfully retake Galveston. In later years, the railroad was used by tourists who were drawn to the active nightlife. During Prohibition, Dickinson was considered a wide-open town, and rum-running and bootlegging flourished, providing vices to thousands of people in its heyday. During the 1920s, Dickinson became a significant tourist destination, resulting from the opening of gambling venues by the Maceo Crime Syndicate, which ran Galveston during this time. Gambling stayed active until 1957, when the Texas Attorney General and Texas Rangers shut down open gambling throughout the county. Dickinson's residents are known to be friendly, polite, and welcoming. But in 1990, in the eyes of one young girl, every man in this small community became a potential suspect. 32-year-old Elaine Shewitt and her daughter Jennifer live together in the Yorktown apartments in a ground-floor unit in Dickinson, Texas. Dickinson was a small town then, about 9,500 residents where everyone knew each other, and the Yorktown apartments were home to families with young children. Jennifer was 8 years old, 4 feet tall, and 45 pounds. She had a big smile, brown hair, freckles, and very large blue eyes. On Thursday, August 9, 1990, the hot summer was winding down and Jennifer was preparing to enter third grade at Silbernagel Elementary School. That evening, like most evenings, Jennifer went to sleep in her mother's bed. She was afraid of the dark and usually slept with her mom. On this night, a restless Jennifer was sent to her own room at about 2.30 a.m. because she was keeping her mother awake. She turned on her lamp and read until she fell asleep. So, Kath, one thing that Jennifer did say is that when her mom asked her to go to her own room because she had work the next morning, Mm -hmm. Jennifer said, because I love you, Mom... I'm going to sleep in my own room tonight. Oh, sweet little girl. Exactly. The next morning, Friday morning at 7.30 a.m., Mrs. Shewitt went into Jennifer's bedroom to wake her. Her daughter's bed was empty and Jennifer's window was open. 
And Calf, I want you to picture this. Imagine an apartment unit. It's a brick apartment building. And the window is one of those aluminum trimmed, totally reminds me of like something that was like built in the 60s, where the window's large and slides open to the side. The window is about chest high. And if Jennifer had, let's say, climbed out her window, she would have actually been in the parking lot. The cars parked up against her apartment complex, sort of nose in, perpendicular to the building. So if she got out of her window, she also could have stepped on the hood of a car. Theoretically, she could have. Yes. It was summer and open windows were not uncommon, particularly because the air conditioning in the apartment complex was not often working. But Mrs. Shewitt quickly realized that her eight-year-old daughter was not home and began a frantic search. According to an August 11, 1990 article by journalists Ann Comstock and Janice Simon of the Galveston Daily News, when Mrs. Shewitt realized Jennifer was gone, she went to a nearby convenience store and to the neighbors asking if anyone had seen her. And of course, she called the police. In the article, Mrs. Shewitt was imploring the public that this was a real emergency. She told the reporters that she did not believe Jennifer had run away because she was very afraid of the dark. She is quoted as saying, she is very insecure and won't even sleep without the lights on. She is not a brave little girl. In a televised interview later that day, Mrs. Shewitt was crying and scared, saying, she is the only thing I have. I have nothing else. It's just the two of us together. This is my baby and I need her back. Police arrived shortly after the call, and Dickinson police officer Jason Grieger said the window to Jennifer's bedroom had been slid open, but there were no signs of a struggle. Her piggy bank and her books were still on her bed from the night before. But police immediately knew it was not a runaway case and began search efforts. Because the Dickinson Police Department was very small and needed to immediately mobilize a search team, they asked firefighters and local residents to help, which they all did. Kath, I was watching a documentary on this, and it said that On this night, there would have only been four officers on duty. Family members distributed flyers early Friday afternoon throughout Dickinson, asking anyone with information to call the Dickinson Police Department. With the television interviews given by Jennifer's mom, Mrs. Shewitt, and the general way bad news travels fast, especially in small towns, the town of Dickinson was quickly aware of Jennifer's disappearance. Mothers and children who called Yorktown Apartments home were frantic. In televised interviews, neighbors spoke about how terrified they were, and one mother informed a reporter that she and her neighbors were boarding their windows and buying guns. At 6.30 p.m. on Friday, August 10th, so this is the same day that Jennifer was reported missing, she was found in a field just over three miles from her home and just a block away from her elementary school. That day, children were running and playing tag in the field, and one of the children tripped over Jennifer's foot, thinking it was her playmate hiding in the grass. It was then she saw the naked and bloodied body of Jennifer. The child's parent called the police, who rushed to the scene. Jennifer was alive, but barely. Her throat had been slashed, and she was believed to have been sexually assaulted. The first officer on the scene saw Jennifer was going in and out of consciousness, and he told her, You've been found. You're going to be okay. Please stay with me. I believe, Kathy, that was Officer Phil Tracy. He was doing everything he could to encourage the little girl to keep fighting for her life. 
Jennifer was taken by life flight to John Seeley Hospital in Galveston for emergency surgery. Mrs. Shewitt was at the hospital, but was not allowed to see Jennifer as doctors worked furiously in an attempt to save her life. Jennifer had lost a large amount of blood, and Dr. Chester Strunk, who was an assistant professor of otolaryngology from the University of Texas Medical Branch at Galveston, performed a tracheotomy, placing a tube in her trachea to stabilize her airway. Dr. Strunk said Jennifer had facial trauma, a large throat laceration, scratches to her body, and ant bites all over her. Her vocal cords were damaged in the attack, and if she survived, the doctors believed she would never speak again. But because major blood vessels in her neck were miraculously not cut in the attack, Dr. Strunk was hopeful about her survival. After several hours of surgery, Jennifer was under heavy sedation and remained in serious condition in the pediatric ICU. As predicted by Dr. Strunk, when Jennifer awoke, she could not speak. Eight-year-old Jennifer, who had spent over 12 hours laying in a field, bleeding profusely and going in and out of consciousness, began her recovery from the attack and surgery under a cloud of sedation with police standing guard at her hospital door and a nurse sitting at her bedside. The Dickinson Police Department brought the FBI into the case immediately. They also received assistance from the Galveston County Sheriff's Department and the Texas Rangers. On Saturday, the day following the kidnapping, search teams scoured the area for evidence. Detective Ralph Garcia of the Dickinson Police Department confirmed that officers found Jennifer's clothing in a ditch about three blocks from the field where she was found. Also found in the ditch were a pair of men's boxers and a man's t-shirt. Searchers continued to look for the weapon used to slash Jennifer's throat. After an unsuccessful search of the field where Jennifer was found, investigators had the field mowed and searched again, hoping to find the weapon to no avail. On Sunday, so just two days after Jennifer was found, an article by journalist Ann Comstock in the Galveston Daily News said doctors listed Jennifer in good condition and police were now able to interview her. According to the article, Jennifer was afraid, sedated, and still unable to speak. The journalist was also told that Jennifer could not give them much information. Everything they were receiving was written in notes. It was clear to the hospital staff and investigators that Jennifer was terrified of men and actually kicked one of the doctors in the stomach. According to Dickinson Police Chief Wayne Broussard, Jennifer was communicating and writing to a female officer and a female FBI agent because they wanted to question her without family members present. Kath, apparently when they began questioning Jennifer, the police officers, she was so terrified she was not responding to them. So they brought in her mom and they would ask her mother questions. The mom would go in, give Jennifer a piece of paper, ask her the question. Jennifer would then write down the answer, hand it to her mom, and her mom would go hand it to the police officers. It was a very um, tedious and laborious process. Exactly. So, Kathy, not to compare my situation to Jennifer's in any way, shape, or form, but I do have a story about being afraid of men. When I was four years old, I broke my arm, and I had to be taken to the emergency room. And all I remembered about that experience was the big bad men who were giving me shots and hurting my arm. Mm -hmm. 
I became afraid of men. So in the neighborhood we lived in, my dad's best friend, who was a colonel in the Marine Corps, lived just around the corner. And his daughter and I played together a lot. So I would run over to the house and I would knock on the door. And when the mom answered the door, I would say, hi, is the colonel home? (laughs) And if she said yes, I ran home. (laughs) And if she said no, I walked straight in the door. (laughs) So before this, he was fine. No, before this, he was fine. That is so funny. (laughs) (laughs) Although officers did not believe the attacker was a family member, they believed they could get more information without her mother in the room, which is why Dickinson Police Chief Broussard was so happy that there were two female investigators who were able to sit with Jennifer, make her feel more comfortable, and give them more information. Through this process, Jennifer was now able to give a description of her attacker, which ruled out her father, who had apparently not been in her life for years. Kathy read an article in the newspaper where the mother was quoted as saying that she didn't know where Jennifer's father lived and had not known for years. So he was clearly not in the picture. When tragedy happens in a small town, everyone is affected. The Dickinson community was no exception, and the residents were traumatized by Jennifer's kidnapping and attack. In different ways, the community responded with support. For example, Dickinson police officer Phil Tracy, who I believe was the first officer on scene when Jennifer was found, opened a Jennifer Shewitt Fund at the Citizen State Bank to help defray her medical expenses. Charles Yeos, a bank rep, said several hundred dollars had been donated and Officer Tracy would be accepting a donation of several thousand dollars from a local business. And so, Kath, I found an article in the paper and it was about a week after Jennifer had been found. There was a barbecue being advertised in a Kroger parking lot between 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. on a Saturday and all the proceeds were going to be deposited into Jennifer Shewitt's account at Citizens Bank. So there were a lot of, like, neat little things happening. And for those of you who don't know, Kroger is actually a grocery store. There was also a $1,000 reward offered by the Galveston Bay Area Crime Stoppers for information leading to any arrest of the person who harmed Jennifer. And there was also a small article in the paper. It was more like a tribute to Jennifer, written by someone called M. Perkins, and it was published in the Galveston Daily News on August 19, 1990, and it was written on behalf of a Girl Scout troop. The title was Hearts Go Out to the Shewitt Family, and I'm not going to read it, but the last paragraph simply says, To Jennifer and her family, we extend our love and want them to know we hold them tenderly in our prayers. That's a lovely sentiment. So one of the things that tripped me out, Kath, when I read this and many other articles is that Here we have an eight-year-old kidnapping victim who was probably sexually assaulted, and all the papers are naming her and giving her address. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I grew up during this time, and I don't remember seeing this in the paper. Jennifer shouldn't have had her name because she was a minor. She's a baby. Right. As investigators continued interviewing Jennifer using notes, it became evident that she had excellent recall of the events. The notes were actually pretty incredible, and there's a lot of them published online for anybody who wants to look. She wrote in detail about the events of that evening in response to the officer's questions. And when you read the notes, you see the chicken scratch of this little eight-year-old girl, and there's a ton of misspellings. But she wrote, he choked me four times. Like, it was so specific. Well, and she had his name. Yes, she said his name was Dennis. Choked was spelled C-H-O-C-K-E-D. Right. And And Dennis was D-I-N-N-E-S-S-E. Exactly. And so she had the color of his car, the type of cigarettes he smoked, the type of beer he drank, 
all of these things, the fact that he had two green tattoos, it was incredible the notes that this kid wrote. And what was also interesting is as we're talking about these misspellings, on the notes themselves, you see in somebody else's writing, the word Dennis, D-E-N-N-I-S, the usual spelling is written next to it. Right. Or choked. Actually, I don't think choked was one of them. But, no. But there are some other instances where they're kind of trying to describe. They're clarifying. Thank you. No, it's definitely an adult writing. I don't know if that was her mom's writing or if the officer's writing. Four days after the attack, on Tuesday, August 14th, 1990, the Galveston Daily News journalist Ann Comstock reported that doctors confirmed that a sexual assault took place. I gotta say, it's so much easier to say sexual assault, and it's much more benign, but this little girl was raped. It's, I don't know. It tones it down. Well, yeah, it's like putting lipstick on a pig. Well, and as your husband said, as we were talking about this case, a sexual assault can be a slap on the ass. Right. This was not that. Right. No, this little girl was raped. This little eight-year-old girl. 45 pounds. Right. Journalist Comstock also reported that Dickinson police were working with the FBI to analyze the clothing found on Saturday for fibers and stains. It was reported that photographs of Jennifer's injuries were being sent to a forensics expert to determine what type of weapon was used to slash her throat. Also on Tuesday, Jennifer sat with a sketch artist from the Houston Police Department named Lois Gibson. Ms. Gibson had been on the job less than one year when she got the call. She was a painter who had turned to forensic art to help victims put a face on their attacker using pastels. In an interview with 48 Hours entitled Afraid of the Dark, Ms. Gibson said she doubted the police initially took her position seriously as a forensic sketch artist. She called herself a rookie and said at the time she began her career, she had little confidence. But when she started getting results, she was taken more seriously. Ms. Gibson was called to sketch Jennifer's attacker and was very nervous. She felt a tremendous amount of pressure sketching for any victim, but especially one who was so young, who could not speak, and had been through so much trauma, knowing that the sketch would be released to the public. Ms. Gibson drove to the hospital in Galveston and went to the pediatric ICU to see Jennifer. When Ms. Gibson saw Jennifer, this little eight-year-old girl, she was struggling not to cry, but she was grateful that Jennifer was willing and able to participate in the process. Lois used several books from the FBI that were of different facial features. So they had noses and lips and eyes and chins and hair from color to cut and what have you, going through them all very slowly, asking Jennifer to identify the features that were most similar to the man who attacked her. You know, Kath, I found this so fascinating. I knew nothing about sketch artists, and we've seen a million sketches, obviously, but I watched a little documentary specifically on Lois Gibson. And she was saying that she would start from the top down. So she would start with hair and she would show a book of all different kinds of hairlines and they would pick out a hairline. Then she would do forehead, eyebrows, eyes, cheeks, nose, lips, all the way down. And I had never given it much consideration. And it was a very impressive process. Lois Gibson said Jennifer was so injured and would occasionally get frustrated, but she continued to point at the pictures time and time again. The work between the two of them was a series of writing notes and pointing at the pictures. It was frustrating for both Ms. Gibson and Jennifer, but Jennifer was strong and determined and willing to work hard. And this is four days after she's been attacked. Yes, it was. It took approximately one hour for Ms. Gibson to create the sketch. Jennifer communicated that she also had memories of the car she was kidnapped in, so Ms. Gibson, although she did not like drawing cars and did not have the same confidence in drawing them, she did her best according to Jennifer's memory. 
Kath, one of the things I read was that she wasn't a car person, like I'm not a car person. And so she was tense about doing this car because she knew it was going to be published to the community. And so whatever Jennifer was describing led an officer to believe like, okay, this is an American made car. It's a two door. It's a whatever. And so he showed her a picture, sort of something that she used as a template, and they were able to show the public the car as well, or the best representation thereof. For the color of the car, Ms. Gibson kept mixing colors until Jennifer was able to choose the one that came the closest. Mm -hmm. And according to Ms. Gibson, the color of the vehicle is actually what took the longest time. In the note, Jennifer referred to the color of the car as yucky blue. Ms. Gibson signed and dated the composite August 14, 1990, and it was released to the public that same night, so Tuesday night, four days after Jennifer's kidnapping and recovery. Little did Lois Gibson know, but Jennifer had a plan. Since awakening in the hospital, all Jennifer wanted to do was catch the person who did this to her so he didn't harm anybody else and so he could be punished. So, Kath. There was a nurse who spent most of her shift at Jennifer's bedside, typically during the evening because Jennifer was afraid of the dark. So the nurse was trying to make little Jennifer feel comfortable. And she was talking about the fact that she had an eight-year-old as well. And she was saying her name and she was talking about her, trying to make Jennifer feel comfortable. Like, I'm a mom. I understand you. That kind of thing. She could trust her. She would take care of her. Well, Jennifer heard that she had an eight-year-old daughter and it caused Jennifer a ton of fear and anxiety because all she thought was, he's going to get your daughter. She was terrified that this nurse, who was so lovely, and by the way, they're still in touch to this day. But especially because Jennifer was taken from her home during the night. Yes. And that's when this nurse was sitting with her. Totally. So who was with the daughter? I'm sure she had somebody with her. Right. But- I'm sure in Jennifer's mind, it was, you're leaving your daughter alone. Jennifer was like, oh, no, he's going to get your kid. It did not comfort her. It caused her stress. On Thursday, so nearly a week after Jennifer's violent attack, something unexpected happened. She regained her voice. Her vocal cords had been cut, but not severed, and they grew back, giving her the ability to talk. Jennifer was going on what she called a silent rant when a sound escaped from her lips and thus began her ability to speak again. The following day, an article appeared in the paper announcing that Jennifer's voice was back. Dickinson Police Chief Wayne Brassard said Jennifer had spoken to Lieutenant B.J. Miller of the Galveston Organized Crime Unit on Thursday. Lieutenant Miller said, we're working on things she told me today, and I'm hoping she'll be able to tell us more now that she has her voice back, which, of course, she did. She added details regarding information already communicated by notes and filled in blanks. Her memory and her recall were impressive to every investigator involved in the case, and the story she told was horrifying. Jennifer said that after falling asleep in her bedroom, she woke up in the arms of a stranger. He was running with her in his arms, and when she tried to scream, he covered her nose and mouth. Her kidnapper whispered to Jennifer that he was a police officer and that she needed to calm down. They got into a car, and he held her on his lap as they drove away. She knew something was wrong. As an adult, Jennifer gave interviews and said, as a child, I wanted to believe him, but the part of me that was scared of the dark knew there was something really wrong here. 
The kidnapper drove his car to the local elementary school where they sat in the parking lot. The kidnapper told Jennifer to look at the moon, and when it changed colors, her mom would come to pick her up. Jennifer watched the moon and waited to see her mother's headlights, but the moon never changed colors, and her mother never came. The man was drinking and smoking and offering Jennifer candy, which she knew she wasn't allowed to take from a stranger, so she said no. Kath, real quick, I listened to an interview of her, and she said that because he was offering her candy, she knew everything was bad. Because he was a stranger offering candy, like, and that's always exactly. bad. Exactly. Stranger danger. Yep. Eventually, the kidnapper said, well, your mom's not coming, and started up his car. He drove to a field where she began asking questions. If you're the police, where's your gun? Where's your badge? She wanted him to prove to her that he was a police officer. He told her his gun was in the back seat. So when little Jennifer stood up to look in the back seat, he pulled down her panties and the sexual assault began. He held a knife to her throat and said, Am I scaring you, little girl? Am I scaring you? Then he choked her as hard as he could. Jennifer recalled being choked multiple times and losing consciousness. When Jennifer woke up, she was being dragged by the ankles across a field. She had no clothes on, and she pretended she was dead. He dropped her legs, and she heard him walk off. When Jennifer tried to scream, no sound came out, and so she recalled bringing her hand up to her throat and finding it full of blood when she drew it back. Jennifer recalled losing and then regaining consciousness several times as she lay there in the field, unable to move. She said she knew she was going to die, and she was okay with it. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, <laughs> despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. As she lay there motionless and unable to yell, Jennifer was being bitten over and over by red ants. 
It turns out her attacker had put her down on top of a fire ant hill. Mm-hmm. After the sun came up, she heard kids playing around her, and she recalled a man walking his dog. The dog kept barking and trying to lead the owner over to her, but the man continued walking without ever seeing her. Kath, as an adult, Jennifer basically says, like, she's looking through blades of grass. The grass was high, and she sees the man, she sees the dog, she sees the kids playing, and she's just laying there. She can't move. She can't do anything. I can't even imagine. I can't either. That that feeling. It's the feeling of helplessness and terror and... Total powerlessness. Yes. So finally, around 6.30 p.m., a child who was playing tag with some other friends in the field tripped over Jennifer's foot. As we said earlier, the child thought it was one of their friends who was hiding in the grass. But finally finding Jennifer brought the necessary attention and brought the police. And as a side note, Jennifer, as an adult, has looked up those people who were children playing in the field that day. Really? Yeah. Oh, I love that. I know. I thought that was kind of cool. And she sought them out and said, what was it like? You know, and of course, they were traumatized. Oh, that was what I was going to say. Like, I'm sure that's a moment in their life they'll never forget. Oh, never. And she also went back multiple times to the field where she was found to see if there was any memories that would come back to her. Because she was so intent on recalling every single thing. Right. Which is so impressive because I think a lot of people, and probably me, I wouldn't want to remember. I think I'd want to be like, I'm going to move on with my life. You know, whatever. I don't know. I was impressed by her tenacity in seeking recollection as much as possible. Agreed. After having heard the whole story including how the kidnapper told her he was a police officer. The hospital caretakers now understood why she was so afraid of the police officers guarding her room. To her, it wasn't safe. Everyone was a suspect. And it was while she was in the hospital that Jennifer actually began to realize that she'd been kidnapped. And she said as a child, she had no concept of what rape was. Now, thankfully for all of her attempts to remember as many details as she could so that she could help the police find this person who did this to her, She's never been able to recall the details of the rape. Thank God. Absolutely. So, Kath, one little story that made me sad when I read it was that one of her uncles who wanted to make her feel better and give her a little treat while she was in the hospital brought her a Tinkerbell makeup set. And so I'm sure it had bright pink lipstick and nice blue eyeshadow. Absolutely both. (laughs) Exactly. So she's excited to put the makeup on her face, but it's the first time since she's been in the hospital that she has to look in the mirror. So she looks in the mirror and she sees her face. Her face is traumatized and all of the whites of her eyes are bright red. Oh, because the blood vessels had been blown from being choked. That's exactly right. Oh, Yeah. And as an adult, she said, looking back in that moment, she thought that her eyes were going to stay that way forever. And she said she thought she was ugly. Oh, I know. That broke my heart a little bit. Well, it broke my heart a lot, actually. Eventually, Jennifer left the hospital to fanfare and support from hospital workers and her family members. She then began her third grade year at school. Dickinson police added staff to the department and placed officers in schoolyards and even in classrooms. The whole town of Dickinson was still on edge, and Jennifer was terrified of who may come looking for her. The clothing found the day after the kidnapping was submitted for DNA testing. Unfortunately, there was not a sufficient sample to even test. And despite the continued efforts of the Dickinson Police Department, the Texas Rangers, the Galveston Sheriff's Department, and the FBI, no viable tips came in, nor were there any suspects identified. 
According to an article published five months after Jennifer's abduction in the Galveston Daily News by, again, journalist Ann Comstock. Who, Your favorite. Yeah, who was a total pit bull through all of this. The Galveston Organized Crime Control Unit followed up on more than 200 leads, all of which led to nothing substantive. Detective Garcia of the Dickinson Police Department was quoted as saying, It bugs the hell out of me that this guy is still out there. I go to sleep when I get home, but I can't sleep more than three or four hours because I can't quit thinking about the fact that he could hurt someone else. You try to put it out of your mind, but you can't. Detective Garcia said the one thing that gave him faith throughout the investigation was Jennifer's miraculous recovery. Little did Officer Garcia know that the disappointment he felt and the lack of answers would consume Jennifer and members of the law enforcement community for years to come. With no leads and no suspects identified, the case went cold. For years after her kidnapping and attack, Jennifer was afraid of the dark and fearful of the moon. She constantly felt like she was on the hunt looking for her attacker. Is he at the grocery store? Is he at the post office? Is he watching her? Is he going to come back? Jennifer attended college for a period of time and then began working as a librarian in the children's section at a local public library. This was a job she loved. She also began dating a man named Jonathan, who was a very supportive boyfriend and, in later years, would become her husband. She maintained contact with the police, but as the years passed, her inquiries to investigators and updates from them were not as frequent, and she felt hopeless at times. Her case was handed off to different investigators over the years, and it became almost unbearable for members of her family to deal with it, so they actually stopped talking about it altogether. But Jennifer never stopped thinking about it. Her biggest fear was that her attacker was continuing to victimize others because he had not been caught after her kidnapping and violent attack. In 2008, two law enforcement officers reached out to Jennifer. One was Dickinson Police Department Detective Tim Cromie, and the other was FBI agent Richard Rennison. They wanted to meet with her and tell her they had teamed up to reinvestigate her cold case. Jennifer was happy to know she had not been forgotten and met with the men. The investigators listened to Jennifer as she cried and expressed her fears that other people may have been victims of this man. She wanted to help solve her own case because she was the only living witness, and she wanted to help take this case to trial. Detective Cromie told Jennifer that he would do everything in his power to get her the answers she needed, and also told Jennifer he would never leave his job, he would never retire, he would never do anything until he solved her case. Wow. According to Jennifer, those words changed her life. She was so grateful to have two dedicated individuals working on her behalf who understood how important this was to her. Jennifer told the men that she wanted to face the person who tried to silence her and show him that she was not a victim. She was victorious. According to an October 15, 2009 CNN article written by Myra Cuevas Nazario, Agent Renison received a memo from the FBI's Child Abduction Rapid Deployment Team seeking child abduction cases that had gone cold and could be retested for DNA evidence. Jennifer Schuett's case was one of those selected. Agent Renison was quoted as saying, This is the only case that I can think of that the victim has suffered such traumatic injuries and survived. The main reason the child abduction rapid deployment team picked this case was because she was alive 
In cases of child abduction, it is rare that the child is recovered alive. Frequently, you recover a body, and most times, you never find them. That's tragic. I know. That's absolutely horrible. The two investigators obtained the physical evidence collected 19 years ago from Jennifer's case at the Galveston County Sheriff's Office evidence room, and they found the clothing from Jennifer and the male believed to be her attacker. They also found Jennifer's original handwritten notes in the evidence box. In July of 2008, all of the clothing was sent to Quantico, Virginia to analyze DNA and put into CODIS, the FBI's DNA database. By now, the case was 18 years old and not a priority. The DNA procedure took over a year, but on September 22, 2009, Agent Renison received a phone call at 2.30 in the morning saying there was a DNA hit. It came back to a man named Dennis Earl Bradford. Dennis Bradford's name was nowhere in the police file and the investigators immediately ran his criminal history. They discovered that Bradford's DNA was in CODIS as a result of a crime he committed in Arkansas in April of 1996. This would have been six years after Jennifer's attack, for which Bradford had to submit DNA samples. According to a probable cause declaration filed by Detective Donna Atkins on April 18, 1996, which was created for the purpose of an arrest warrant, Dennis Bradford approached a woman in a bar and bought her a beer. They played pool, and he eventually offered to give her a ride home. He told her he had some property he wanted her to see and drove her to an unknown location where he began beating on her face and head and choked her into unconsciousness. He raped her at knife point, then drove her to a different location and made her clean herself up. He told her he planned to kill her, and she asked why he hadn't, and he told her he got scared. He apologized numerous times and dropped her off near a racetrack. She walked across the street to a bar, and called the police. She gave officers his license plate number and identified Dennis Bradford as her attacker from a photo the officers took of him. At the time of the 1996 arrest, the paperwork attendant to the probable cause declaration showed that Bradford was 26 years old, 5 feet 11 inches tall, and weighed 235 pounds. He was married with two young children. He called himself a housewife and a Mr. Mom. According to the Affidavit of Indigency, this is done to prove that you don't have enough money to hire your own attorney, and it makes you eligible for a public defender. Bradford's bail was set at $50,000 cash, and because he couldn't afford to pay the bail, he was forced to stay in jail pending his trial. Although Bradford was charged with attempted first-degree murder, prosecutors reduced the charges before trial to rape and kidnapping. He was convicted on the kidnapping charges, but the jury deadlocked on the rape charge. He served four years of a 12-year sentence. And, Kath, I couldn't find any article or court document that explained why he only served four years. Did you? No, I couldn't find anything either. The investigators in Jennifer's case learned that Bradford was now 40 years old. And after being released from prison in 2000, he led a fairly normal life. He was married to a second wife, had two adult children from his first marriage, and three adult stepsons in his second marriage. He was employed as a welder for a fence company and had a good reputation among his peers. He also had a good reputation among his neighbors. Apparently, they lived in a community that the houses weren't too far apart, mm -hmm. but they all kind of knew each other. So they would make sure that lawns were mowed, streets were plowed. They kind of knew each other, knew what everybody was up Took to. Took care of each other. Right. And they all said when he was arrested, wow, never saw it coming. Interesting. 
an arrest warrant was issued in Texas for the attempted murder of Jennifer Shewitt, and Detective Cromey and Agent Renison traveled to North Little Rock, Arkansas, where Bradford lived. Local officers pulled him over on a traffic stop, then arrested Bradford on the warrant. Just before 7 a.m. on October 13, 2009, Dennis Bradford was in custody for a crime that occurred 19 years earlier, and he was about to be extradited to Texas for prosecution. Detective Cromey called Jennifer and told her they had arrested her attacker. Jennifer described that moment as the most surreal moment of her life, and she said that it meant everything to her. Dennis Bradford was charged with attempted murder. At a press conference, Dickinson Police Chief Ron Morales revealed a 1990 driver's license photo and compared it side by side to the sketch Lois Gibson and Jennifer made 19 years prior. Kath, it was ridiculous. Did you see that? I did. And you always see these sketches and then what the real person looked like. And never in a million years are you going to connect the two. These were freaking identical. It was like she took the driver's license photo and sketched it based on that. Right. That was absolutely incredible. But one thing I want to say about Lois Gibson, the sketch artist, she's actually, I found out later, in the Guinness Book of World Records as the most successful sketch artist. Really? Yes. Over a thousand criminals have been identified based upon the sketches she has made. That's amazing. I know. This lady's a stud and she's retired now, but in the last years of her career, she was really pressing hard to support forensic sketch artists and talking about the need. And one of the things I think that makes her successful is that she's extremely empathetic. She said at one point that she takes on the victim's pain and creates the image. Yeah. And if you hear her speak, it's like her voice is so compassionate. And I could just see her being really perfect in this role. And when she was 21, she was violently attacked by a serial rapist. So he apparently knocked on her door and she opens the door and he immediately grabbed her throat and just started choking her. So she couldn't breathe. She was shocked, you know. Anyway, so he rapes her. And I think probably part of that experience left her very, very empathetic. And so she knows exactly how to deal with crime victims. At this press conference, when Dickinson Police Chief Ron Morales was giving accolades to those involved, Detective Cromie pointed out that the real heroes are the crime scene investigators who protected and kept the evidence for testing that didn't even exist at the time. The DNA was nearly 20 years old and it was perfectly stored. I would agree with him. Yeah, completely. According to an October 14, 2009 Associated Press article by Jason Lozano, Jennifer was at the press conference and told the crowd of reporters that she hoped her case would serve as a reminder to victims of violent crimes to never give up seeking justice. Bradford waived his right to a court-appointed attorney when he appeared in court two days after his arrest. He said he would retain his own lawyer. For security reasons, the hearing was held at the Galveston County Jail and not in the courtroom. Upon conviction of the charges, attempted capital murder, the defendant faced the sentence of life in prison. The bail was set at a million dollars and Bradford remained in county jail pending trial. Detective Cromie and Agent Renison found that Bradford had two addresses in Dickinson in 1990, one of which was blocks from Jennifer Shewitt's apartment. They were confident they had their man 
And even with the DNA evidence, investigators wanted a confession to make the prosecution airtight. According to a May 20, 2010 article written by Joel Eisenbaum for KPRC2 News in Houston, Detective Cromie and Agent Renison taped a three-and-a-half-hour interview with Bradford. We will only discuss a few of the excerpts. Bradford waived his Miranda rights and agreed to speak with investigators and was kind of trying to act all innocent. Mm -hmm. He wanted to be chatty. He was trying to be nice, telling them that, oh, you've done your homework on me. Right, right, right. Bradford said he remembered seeing signs back in Dickinson about Jennifer being abducted and praying for her. He admitted to knowing her, but wasn't ready to give up any details about how he knew her. So, Kath, at one point, the questioning went like this. Question, you ever heard the name Jennifer Shewitt? Answer, yes. Question, did you ever have the occasion to come into contact with her? Answer, yes. And then the detective says, tell me about that. And he goes, no. At some point, the detective says, there are two sides to every story. And Bradford replied, there is no other side to the story. And the detective said the following, which was what really turned the interview around. The detective said, if you were to see her, I think you would be extremely proud. I really do. At this point, Bradford's head collapses forward into his right hand and he starts crying. And then he looks up and says, she's alive? And the detective said, yes, she's alive. And he says, oh, thank goodness, she's alive. And the detective again says, yes, she's alive. And let me tell you something, she's with us right now. So at this point, Bradford, who is holding a coffee cup in one hand, puts down the coffee cup and basically collapses bawling into his hands, hiding his face, crying. And then he takes this big breath and he says, thank goodness, she's alive. And again, the detective says, yes, she's alive. Like he kept asking it. Well, I'm sure he couldn't believe it. Oh, yeah. But you're watching this interview and you see all of his exterior, not bravado, that's not the right word, but his... It's the wall he had up. Yes. It just crumbles right. when he realizes this little girl lived. So now detectives want an admission, right? So they start saying, Jennifer needs closure. She deserves closure, et cetera, et cetera. So the following is a compilation of the most important statements he made to the detectives. He says, okay, mama, forgive me. For many years, I've just wanted to end it, but I've never had the guts. So, Kathy, during the interview, they talked about suicide because Bradford had brought up that he had tried suicide a couple of times. Yes. The first time being just a couple of days after he tried to kill Jennifer. Right. So here's the crazy part. After he tried to commit suicide, he was actually taken to the psychiatric ward of John Seeley Hospital, which is where Jennifer was. There at the same time. At the same time. That's incredible. So during the course of this interview, the detectives now, again, they're focusing on Jennifer's closure and they want an admission that he raped her and slit her throat. Like that's what they're going for. So they keep pressing and pressing and pressing. And finally he says, and again, this is a compilation, so I'm kind of taking bits and pieces. Right. Not a single day goes by where I don't see that baby. There is no other side to the story. She was an innocent. And I was a sick, deranged, beat up little effing punk. She wasn't anybody I met. I don't remember why I pulled up to those apartments. I remember I pulled up to this lot. I remember seeing a window. It was open and the light was on. I pulled that little girl out of that window and put her in my car and she was freaking out. And I told her, it'll be all right. Please don't worry. It'll be all right. I told her I was a police officer and everything would be okay. I pulled off on this little road and that little girl, she was so scared and I just lost it. I was like a savage animal. And I can't, I can't force myself to say it. 
And the detective then says, it's been haunting you your whole life, Dennis. Let's hear it. And then Bradford says, I took that little girl out there and I raped her and I cut her throat. And the detective goes, why? And Bradford says, I don't know why. So now detectives had the exact confession they were so desperately hoping for. Dennis Bradford decided to plead guilty and a trial date was anticipated for one year out. So this would have been around October of 2010. Mm -hmm. However, on May 10th of 2010, Bradford hung himself using bedding in his cell at the Galveston County Jail. This was devastating news to Jennifer, who spent hours trying to perfect her victim impact statement for trial. And you know, Kath, she said in this interview with 48 Hours that when Detective Cromie and Agent Renison called to tell her they knew who he was and they were arresting him, she said, don't let him kill himself. Right. Because she wanted to be able to face him in trial. Exactly. For 19 years, she waited for justice, and now she would not be able to confront her attacker. She was devastated. And when Cromie called her to say that Bradford had killed himself, he was so apologetic and she was bawling. I bet. She was so upset. August 10th of 2010 was actually the 20-year anniversary of the date of her attack. So because Jennifer was unable to read her victim impact statement in court to Dennis Bradford, she decided she was going to go sit at his grave and read the impact statement to him. Jennifer said that this was her chance to say everything she wanted to say for 20 years. She walked down a gravel road and then up to Dennis Bradford's grave that was covered in rock with a small marker. And just as an aside, Kathy, interestingly, Dennis Bradford, as we mentioned, was a husband, he was a father, and he was a son. Mm -hmm. His gravestone only says son. Oh, interesting. The rest of his family's like, I don't want to be a part of that. Exactly. Now, Jennifer said that she sat down on the dried grass and took a deep breath and started to cry as she read his name out loud. The hardest thing about her journey was the unknown, not knowing who had done this to her, and now she had a name and she was sitting with this person. Jennifer said this was not the environment in which she expected to read her victim impact statement to Dennis Bradford, but this was her opportunity. She said she read it for about 10 minutes, and before she got up and left, she asked her boyfriend Jonathan, do you think Bradford heard what I just said? And just as she said that, she was bitten by a red ant. Mm. And she said she took that to mean God was telling her, yes, he heard everything you said. So Jennifer said she got up, she dusted herself off and left the day feeling empowered and as though Dennis Bradford heard her loud and clear. In the years after Bradford's suicide, Jennifer became an active and vocal advocate for victims of violent crime. She spoke at schools, seminars, and conferences across the nation. Jennifer said she believed that God gave her her voice back for a reason, which was to share her story and hope that she could make a difference in the lives of others. She encouraged victims of violent crimes to speak up for themselves and showed them that everything was going to be okay. Jennifer also married Jonathan, her longtime boyfriend, and they are now blessed with two children. There was a website that Jennifer created called justiceforjennifer.com. She also had a blog called jennifersvoice.blogspot.com. She used each of these platforms as a way to communicate and encourage victims of violent crime. Kath, when I looked at one of her old entries from 2009, it says the following. Bradford may have stolen my voice for a very short time. He may have taken from me my ability to trust others easily, 
and he may have taken away a part of my being and innocence, but he never took away my will to survive, my strength, or my passion for life, and he never will. Thank you for listening. This ends our very first season of Killer Destinations. Yay! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> but what's even more exciting, as we said, is season number two is coming at you next week. Woo, woo. Yeah. <laughs> if you have any case suggestions... Definitely reach out to us. Please. Several of our most recent cases, actually, right. have been suggested by our listeners. True. We appreciate it. If you haven't left an Apple review, please do so. Thanks for hanging in there with us. And we hope you're with us through the rest of this adventure. And if you're not following us yet on social media, we can be found at Killer Destinations Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And new for season two is TikTok. Oh, my goodness. We will make an announcement when we will start posting, and hopefully you'll be able to follow us there, too. If she says so. (laughs) (laughs) And I do. (laughs) 